my guest I've had on an episode uh, recently with the uh, WCSAD and well, I'm sorry, right now we're with the WCSAD, but she was actually with me during the CCSAD series. The WCSAD, of course, is the West Coast Symposium on Addiction and Disorder. And what we're doing now uh, with Dr. Ross is we're going to be talking about trauma and how it's passed through the families. This, this intergenerational trauma concept that is becoming so important to talk about. And I, I want to express a little bit just how invasive, pervasive it is with families so that we can really understand that this behavior that our children are exhibiting is the language of the family being displayed for all. And that's difficult and that's frustrating and that's hard when your child is struggling and it reawakens your own trauma. Now, Dr. Ross, as I said, has been with us before. Uh, she's been so amazing that at the end of the episode, I was like, you've got to talk to Kristen Walker over at Mental Health News Radio. And right before the episode, I found out uh, that Dr. Ross has. And so I want you to go to Mental Health News Radio, look at all of uh, Dr. Wa uh, Ross's shows because she's also an expert on on eating, not just trauma, but eating, the, the, the intergenerational trauma. So welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. This is the W. CSAD series of Beyond Risk and Back put on by C4 Events. And my guest today is Dr. Catherine Coker Ross. Uh, Dr. Ross, did I say your one of your last names correctly? Is it Coker? Yes, you actually did. That's Yay. one that usually gets screwed up, but you did great. <laughs> well, welcome back to Beyond Risk and Back. I'm so happy to have you. I know my parents gained so much from you. And uh, I enjoy talking to you so much. So thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. If this is a listener's first time, can you give them a little bit of background on, on you, your degree, why you do what you do? Okay, sure. Um, I'm a medical doctor and Wonderful. I'm board certified in preventive medicine and also in addiction medicine. So for many of us, eating disorders are classified as a behavioral addiction. So I work with eating disorders and other addictions, including opiate uh, use disorder, alcohol use disorder, things like that. So that's kind of my purview is how do we help people change their behavior so that they can heal from these, um, these addictions. And, you know, I've worked at all levels of care and treatment in terms of, you know, working in inpatient care, um, residential, PHP, IOP, et cetera. And eventually kind of came to the place where I didn't want to work in a treatment center anymore because I realized, and I think everybody knows this, but we keep kind of putting blinders on about it, that you cannot really heal an addiction of any kind or an eating disorder in a 30 day or even a 60 day treatment program. And, you know, I saw so many parents who were mortgaging their houses, emptying out their 401ks in a, in a very, you know, uh, desperate attempt to help their loved ones, but only to find out that, you know, well, they get out and then they relapse and again and again and again. And, I've seen patients who've been in these in programs, you know, 10, 15 times. 
I couldn't agree with you more. It's one of the reasons why our minimum stay for children is four months. We just could not look at the research and justify a 28, 30 day program and even a 60 day program. I, I just, right. it doesn't work. But even after four months, they have to have follow up. And that's I think right. that's what, where a lot of programs fall down that they don't have anything for patients to go to after they get out of their treatment facility. And, you know, it's according to preventive medicine research, it takes actually three to five years to make a permanent behavioral lifestyle change. Three to five years, not three to five weeks. <laughs> and then that really speaks to how long the maintenance of the change is required. You know, they say 90 and 90 days, which certainly I was one of those 90 and 90 day guys, you know, for, for 12 step recovery after the program. And, and again, it's set it off on the path, but the relapse process is <laughs> three to four years deep. I mean, I have, I have interviewed people, experts in the field, uh, especially at an England conference out in London. I had a guy talking about sex addiction on, on the air. And, you know, he was coaching couples where they were suffering sex addiction and they were, you know, he's going through all this, all this stuff. And I, I said at the end, how long have, have you been sober? And he goes, eight months. And I was like, oh God. And I never published the episode because I'm like this, that's not expertise. Like, like there, there is a, there is a, uh, a regime of change, as you say, the wraparound care program that must continue for years. And, you know, in, in the best uh, iteration of the 12-step programs, it gives you that time to it heal. Does. And if you really work those 12 steps well and you have a great sponsor, then over time you'll go through these different stages, stages like, you know, that we talk about the pink cloud where right. everybody's so hopeful. And, you know, I, I just recently <clears throat> went through this with one of my patients with alcohol use disorder. And, you know, he got out of treatment. He was gung-ho. He was going to all these meetings. And he was uh, becoming a sponsor himself right out of treatment. And, you know, like texting 50 different people a day to encourage them. And I was like, whoa, we need to you know, take a breath, step back. And this is about focusing on your recovery first and then being able to support other people. But, you know, there are all those different, uh, you know, times that people go through in recovery, starting with the first 90 days and then, you know, later and later and later. And there's relapses all along the way and how you deal with those really can make or break your recovery. So I just find, you know, the whole field of addictions very interesting. I think they're one of the most, um, for me, I think any serious illness is an opportunity to transform your life, you know, to change something that's not working, but particularly for addictions and eating disorders, which are very serious disorders, you know, I think there's a real opportunity for people to transform their lives. And in, in the 12 steps, you see people go in and they just, you know, rigidly just do what they're told to do, or they right. just stay on the surface level. When in point of fact, the 12 steps can take you deeper and deeper and deeper into recovery. And that's what needs to happen over time. 
So let's use that as a bridge into our conversation because after 14 years of addiction, uh, and I began my recovery process. And in the beginning of my recovery process, my daughter was still very young. Now that my daughter is 24 years old, we are able to talk about uh, in, in pretty honest and open language some of the things that have affected her life because of the things that affected mine. Now, I want to use this conversation about trauma, intergenerational trauma, epigenetics, all the terms that are coming up before it, because it's a pretty exciting field. It's a pretty interesting and amazing concept on top of the fact that what we're, what is being, what it seems that we're realizing is literally, and Eddie Murphy had said this, said this years ago, that it's, that that it's like luggage. You just pass it on. You just keep passing it on, you know? And it's, I always think of it as like, I, I walked up to my daughter at one point and I said, all right, here's the luggage for your journey. I used it. My mom used it and her great grandmother used it. And now my daughter's using it. And, and the example that I told you off the air was that I had really high serotonin production naturally. And one of the side effects of high serotonin production that I was alerted to was that, um, paranoia and, and you know, it leads, it can lead into schizophrenia, but we would test kids with high serotonin production and they would go to an acute unit and be pres prescribed Seroquel and lose their minds. And people were like, why is this happening? They must have an allergy. But I knew that my paranoia led me to three primary hobbies, martial arts, outdoor survival, and emergency medicine. And people would say, what do you think is going to happen? And, like, and my response was nothing. I know martial arts, outdoor survival, and emergency medicine. I got it handled. But that hypervigilance that came from not having a father, not feeling loved, being bullied, feeling out of control, losing control through drug addiction, and how the drugs affected my brain... I trained my daughter in martial arts since she was born. She has a higher level of training in emergency medicine than I do. Um, and I see how, how I treated her as a father has created a lot of her anxiety. And this field of, of intergenerational trauma, of epigenetics, is saying it's more than just how I parented her that her anxiety yeah. is being handed down through the DNA. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think when before we had such sophisticated knowledge about epigenetics, um, the theory was what we call social learning theory. And that's the one that you just talked about, which is, you know, you parent your child in a certain way, and that then leads your child to have some of the same characteristics that you have. But when you look at studies that now uh, we're all, you know, starting to see come through the pipe, um, you know, starting back in the 60s and even before, you know, there's a study on um, Civil War uh, veterans who had been in, uh, you know, in, in uh, prisoner of war camps, uh, the Union soldiers who were prisoners of war and their sons had, you know, a less lifespan than the sons of those who weren't prisoners of war. And that's even though the sons were born after the war. So initially everyone thought, well, it's something in how, you know, that, that person parents. But then starting in the 60s, we were looking at um, offspring of Holocaust survivors. 
and finding a lot of interesting information. And again, initially thought, oh, it's the parenting. But basically what they found in being able to examine the expression of the DNA. So the DNA is not changed by trauma. What does change is the expression of the genes. So a gene, for example, for addiction could be turned on or it could be turned off, but let's just say turned on um, by trauma. And then that change in gene expression is what's passed to the next generation. Can you talk about gene expression a little bit more? I almost follow what you just said until you say gene expression. What does that mean? Well, you know, for example, my dad died of a heart attack when he was in his 50s. So that puts me at higher risk for a heart attack or heart disease. But it doesn't mean that I am 100% going to have a heart attack. So something has to change in my genetics to turn on that gene for a heart attack. And it could be trauma. Uh, in, you know, if I had had trauma in my earlier life, it might turn on that gene for heart disease, which then would make it look like, well, it's just genetics. You inherited that from your dad. I inherit the risk, but I don't inherit the actual event. Uh, let me, let me give you an animal model because I think that will give you more clarity and it's Perfect. really cool. They took a, you know, series of mice and they would uh, sensitize them to the smell of cherries by giving them an electric shock. So every time they put cherries around, they would shock the mice. So then every time the mouse would smell cherries, they would automatically you know, react like they were afraid and anxious that they were gonna get a, an electric shock, okay? So now the mice have baby mice and then those babies have babies so now we're talking about, you know, two generations of mice. The babies and the, and the grandbabies were never given an electric shock, never. However, they were sensitized to the smell of cherries. So these babies and grandbaby mice, if they were given the smell of cherries, they would get anxious. And that's two generations down. So what they found is that there's a change on a certain gene that has to do with respect, uh, response to stress. And that change, it's a biochemical change, okay. is what then is passed to the next generation. And it encodes that next generation to be afraid of cherries. And then it encodes the third generation to be afraid of cherries. So I'm assuming so, that it's, if it's happening with mice and cherries, it's happening with humans and trauma. So. Well, exactly. So let me just tell you about the Holocaust offspring. They yeah. found a similar biochemical change in a DNA that has to do with how we manage stress. And they found that if the, if the um, Holocaust survivor uh, had post-traumatic stress disorder, which, you know, I would think most of them did, then that changes their DNA. And then that change in the expression of that, those genes is what passes down. So for example, a father who's a Holocaust survivor is more likely for his children, if he has PTSD, is more likely that his children will experience depression and anxiety 
than if the mother has PTSD. So it's, it's sex specific. And again, it's, I mean, it's easy to say the DNA changes, but we know DNA doesn't change in one generation. It takes a lot, you know, eons to change DNA, but epigenetics has shown us that there can be changes in the expression of these genes so that, you know, things that may not have ordinarily happened will happen. And that's where the adverse childhood experiences study was so groundbreaking because it showed that children who had had a certain number of adversities growing up were more likely to experience addiction or obesity or um, all sorts of, of medical conditions, uh, more likely to have suicide uh, attempts, more likely to have heart disease, stroke and diabetes and cancer. So there's like, like, how does this happen? Well, it can't just be parenting that would lead to an increased risk for, for cancer. So we have to put that social learning theory to the side. You know, it certainly has impact how we parent, but the biggest impact is on that expression of the uh, the gene. Okay, so so that I can practice on separating the two, social learning theory would ju- would say, okay, uh, mom was assaulted, brutalized by someone wearing a red shirt and khaki pants, right? So trauma locks in the picture, says this situ- this scenario is dangerous, um, and then she she grows up, she has she has a kid, she's she's married, she's a wonderful loving relationship, she has a toddler. She walks into a certain big box store where all the staff are wearing red shirts and khaki pants. She has a a, a stress response. She has a traumatic response, a trigger response. The toddler is not, there's no language for it in the toddler's minds, but the toddler is sensing things. There's limbic resonance. There's uh, body language. Like the toddler is picking all this stuff, stuff up and is clutching mom deeper. But let's, let's go one step back though, because okay. let's say she was walked into the big box store when she was pregnant. Wow. And, and this, this is what we've been able to see that toxic stress in pregnancy right. changes, changes the gene expression of the fetus. So when that, oh. infant, that's why I, I, I told you about the mice. Yeah. Because the mice, those generations later of mice were never exposed to cherries, but already because their mom's DNA expression was changed, they already have that change in their epigenome in their bodies. So when you talk about mom, if mom had childhood trauma, that changes the expression of the gene. Then when she has the baby, when she's pregnant, that baby then may have that genetic change passed down to her. So the... yeah, so so the baby, the toddler seeing mom's body language change, sensing mom's having a stressful experience and, and kind of desires connection in that moment because mom is emotionally distant, moving away, you know, going into her limbic brain, essentially, because mom's going into fight or flight and baby is like, well, I'm alone all of a sudden and grabs on. So that's the social learning part, right. right? That's that's the social learning theory. But the 
the, the, the toxic stress, the toxic expression that is affecting the baby in utero, that's the, that's the epigenetic piece. That's the intergenerational trauma being passed on. Right. Man, this is so complex. How as a parent, it's like you, you want to look at it. When I, when I train parents, when I teach parents, I was like, if you want to know how good of a parent I am, go ask my children. Cause I'm a great yeah. parent coach, but as a parent, there are things that I feel like I had no control over. This feels like no matter what, I'm going to screw up my kids. Is that true? No, it is not true. And this is what's so, so exciting about it. Because just as a gene can be turned on, it can also be turned off. So let me, let me give you a great example, because this is the most exciting part of my work. I've been working with a group of, you know, from when I was uh, had my practice in Denver, I worked with uh, a number of people with opiate use disorder, many of whom were, you know, using heroin or prescription pain pills. Some had been using since they were young teenagers and so on. Now, so I've been with them long enough, and now many of them are married and having children. And they are now starting to notice that, you know, maybe one of their, of their two kids has that hyperactive stress response. It is very emotional in, in many ways, reminding them of themselves, right? Right. So here's where the exciting part comes in because now I can help teach that father how to parent his child, teaching his child the same emotional regulation skills that he had to learn as an adult. Yeah. But now that his child can learn as a one-year-old, a two-year-old, and this, you know, these same emotion, re, emotional re, regulation skills, stress management skills are the ones that will help keep that genetic risk from uh, taking over. So once again, we come back to the therapeutic process of making consciousness, creating consciousness around the experience, and then teaching coping skills. Okay. So now I've got a listener. I've got a parent who's listening to this going, okay, here comes my dial down of all the ways that my trauma is now getting passed on to the kid. What's the start? How do we start this process? You start in, if you can start in utero, you know, we know that there's lots of, um, you know, vitamins and supplements, like particularly omega-3 fatty acids, just the studies on adults with omega-3 fatty acids shows that they reduce suicide attempts. Uh, they've shown that in the military on, in a couple of different studies dating back almost a decade now. Wow. We know that omega-3 levels in the blood can, if they're high enough, can, are associated with the less likelihood of getting depression. So you know, you can start with the basic things that build a human being that we don't pay attention to because we think, oh, what difference does it make if I eat McDonald's every day when I'm pregnant? Right. I might as well splurge, you know. And then you look at what happens when the baby's born. And the most, the very big thing is, is there bonding between the parent and the child? The bonding, you know, affects the brain 
And again, those effects can last a lifetime. So, you know, there are parents, for example, and it doesn't have to be with the mother. Let's say a mother has postpartum depression and she has to be hospitalized. Then it could be a father, it could be a grandmother, but somebody needs to bond with that child and be the stable figure in that baby, in that infant, that toddler's life. Because that bonding is is really, really critical. And then we, you know, the Centers for Disease Control talks about creating kind of a network around your child of caring, stable, nurturing adults. You know, you can be a weird parent, you can be a damaged parent, you can be a recovering parent, any of those things. But you know what I think? If you love your child and you're able to bond with your child, you go a long way towards preventing the worst things from happening to them. Doctor, hang on just a minute. I'm going to take a break, give a quick uh, shout out to our sponsors and then come back with some final follow-up questions and again, work work on uh, getting my listeners connected with you. So stand by for just a second. Man, every single time I do one of these podcasts where I get to have the experts on my show, like the, the, the top experts in the field, not just giving me the information or getting other therapists or clinicians the information that we all know like we go to these conferences to learn the latest info the the, the most up-to-date uh, uh, data that we can take back to our facilities to educate our staff other clinicians and other teachers to help your family members the whole purpose of this show is to make sure that these experts get to talk directly to you, the listeners, the parents, the teachers, who's wondering why little Johnny in class is doing what he does. So I get to go to these conferences as a podcaster and interview the speakers of these po podcasters. Because of COVID, we are not all locked together in a hotel room uh, or somewhere, some big conference room where uh, uh, we've got all our tables out and we visit everybody and we network and we create referral resources. It's all gone online. It's all virtual. C4 Events, who puts on these conferences, the CCSAD, the WCSAD, they require people to sponsor these huge events. And just because they've gone online doesn't mean they don't need the people because they need the time, they need the energy, and they need the money to keep these things going. So I wanna give a shout out to our bronze, our bronze sponsors who have shown up with that time, energy, and money to help C4 put on the WCSAD 2020 virtual conference. I'm talking about ideal practice, claim path solutions, Promise, Promise Behavioral Health, Hogue Addiction Treatment Centers and Solmar Recovery, 12 South Recovery, Trauma and Beyond Psychological Center, Oric Consulting, Muirwood, J Flowers Health Institute, Cirque Lodge, and Benchmark Transitions. These are the 2020 virtual WCSAD bronze sponsors. My huge thanks. Because of you guys, my listeners, get people like Dr. Ross, giving them the info directly. So thank you so much. And thank you for C4 Events for having me as the podcaster for this show, for this conference, for all of them. All right, let's get back to our guest. Okay. This is, this is so fascinating. This field of study is so thick and deep with 
the, the, the potential, uh, the realization. And I think one of the realizations that I come come in all the realizations, the one that stands up to, to me the most is not the idea that's very popular that somehow this generation is somehow weaker than other generations or more sensitive or less resilient. But it seems like every generation prior to this young generation, the I generation and the millennials has been as traumatized as every other generation, it's just now we're finally looking at it, have scientific evidence to, to point it out, and are actually dealing with it. Is that true, or do, do you think this generation has just so much compounded trauma from all the other unresolved traumas beforehand that they're just yeah. buried in it? You know, that's really, that's a tough, tough question, uh, because you can go all the way back to cavemen, and there's all sorts of challenges in life. I think there have been differences in parenting styles yeah. among different um, generations, for sure. And we talk a lot, at least I talk a lot about uh, the parents who, um, they call them, what do they call them? Helicopter parents? Yeah, he helicopter. Oh. And Gen X is now popularly known as the fighter pilot generation, where they stay completely out of everything until something bad happens and they and they swoop in and bomb the bomb everything. But yeah, helicopters, the constant hovering parent. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people have read about stress and the impact of stress in a kid's life. So they think, oh, I'm just going to keep my, or maybe they've had a lot of stress growing up. So they think I'm just going to keep my kid from having to deal with that. If you protect your children too much, then again, their brain does not develop the capacity to deal with stress. So every child growing up has to have healthy stress. You know, you go to kindergarten and your parents aren't there to protect you from every single thing. And a kid right. hits you in school. And, you know, and so here are the options that you have. So, for example, a lot of little boys are told growing up, boys don't cry, you know, right? right? So there's certain generations that taught men not to show any uh, emotion. And we know that that didn't work too well. And then there, right? And then there are other um, generations of parents who, you know, kind of did this whole protective maneuver and then their kids never leave the basement because they can't deal with the day-to-day the -day life. I was shocked to hear on one of the radio stations that, I can't remember the exact statistics, don't hold me to it, but they were talking about politics and how something like a third of uh, pe younger people felt that it would be fine if the United States was, a military, was run by the military. And we know from history that you know, that hasn't worked too well for most countries. So I, I ever, ever, <laughs> ever, it has never worked for countries. And, you know, so there's just this lack of uh, exposure to real, to the real world. And I think that's what shapes the different generations. Those 
changes in the parenting style. And, you know, obviously not all of the, you know, I was raised by my mom in, in particular, who was like, just tough it out. You know, what's your problem? You don't have any problems. Stop whining, you know. And yeah, I know in my initial parenting, that's what I did. I tried to provide more affection and, you know, some of the other stuff, but it was more still very strict and, you know, like, we got to get up, we got to get things done, da, 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 da. And that had its benefits and it had its, you know, its hardships on my kids, I'm sure. So I, you know, I think we have to make these choices on what kind of humans we want to raise. So in, in other shows and with other experts that I have spoken to, and this is something I mentioned off the air and I wanted to give you a chance to speak to it. They were talking about epigenetics and this gene expression, the biochemical change that's coming from traumatic incidents and stuff like that, that they were, they were able to see it up to 12 generations deep. Now, what was completely blowing me away about that is that that's where I start to get the concept of everybody's got trauma. Everybody is a walking tra trauma bundle. If that's the case, because we're talking about, we're still dealing with the fact that Genghis Khan, you know, is, is that 30% of us have DNA that's related to Genghis Khan and, and what he did. But, but so much, and I, and I guess this is a second part of this question, is so much of it is trying to figure out which is the expression of the gene and which is the social learning theory. So, so my first thing is, based on your research, is it going 12 generations deep? Do we have that? We don't, we don't have enough science that can prove that it goes 12 generations deep. Um, I think right now we're up to, you know, the two generations after okay. the original trauma. Um, but, you know, historical trauma is somewhat different. So just to give you a, a brief summary of that, historical trauma is trauma that affects an entire group of people and that continues to affect them over generations and generations. So that would be something like the Holocaust, uh, the Holocaust slavery, yeah. um, as well as you know the uh, colonization of Native Americans and what happened to them during those times. So all of those things, um, you know, we're now in multiple generations out. And the reason I got interested in that is when looking at, and I did a TEDx, it was at Pleasant Grove in Texas, TEDx Pleasant Grove on this very topic. Cause I have two brothers and one sister with addiction, one brother with heroin, the other brother with crack cocaine, sister with, with cocaine. And I come from a very middle-class African-American family my grandfather was a doctor. My mother had a master's degree. My father had a master's degree, et cetera, et cetera. And so we were highly educated. You know, we, we grew up in really reasonably good homes. Uh, you know, there were issues, but we all have issues. And I started looking at my family tree and just wondering what the heck, not just my generation, my siblings, but then our children, you know, we're having mental illness issues, um, you know, severe obesity, addictions, um, just, you know, 
eating disorders, all of those. And I started wondering, like, what is going on? And then we were able to trace, you know, we have the ability to trace back our history. And when you look at descendants of slaves, when you look at uh, descendants of people in the native population who, and, and also offspring of Holocaust survivors, you do see pretty much the same stuff going on. You see higher risk of depression, anxiety, other mental health issues. You see higher risk of obesity. You see higher risk of diabetes, cancer, et cetera. The same stuff that was in the ACE group because right. the trauma that happened long ago is still going on. You know, think of the native populations where they have the highest poverty rate, even higher than, than black people. They have the highest poverty rate of any group in our nation. They have the highest level of violence, the highest suicide rates. So the discrimination, the oppression that they're going through has continued as it has for other black, indigenous, and other people of color. Okay, so my final question to, to really wrap all this around and to really give my listeners the, 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 the import of all this is, does finding out whether you're, what you've passed on to your child, just to use that, it's a misnomer, but still, you know, what you've passed on to your child, whether it's social learning, whether it's a biochemical change, whether it's because of toxic expression in utero or whether there's historical trauma, does it change the therapeutic recovery process? So what I'm asking is, why is it important to figure out where it came from? I think it's important to figure out where it came from because it does change that. Every particularly for people of color, uh, you know, like when, when I've worked in treatment facilities, most of the time they focus on one individual trauma. And maybe, right. you know, if the dad is an alcoholic, then it's adult child of alcoholics. And I've even seen that not be addressed very much. But even if you don't look at people of color, if you have family history of three generations of people with alcohol use disorder, that's going to impact that person differently than if they just are the first person in their, you know, in their family to have alcohol right. disorders. But particularly for Black, Indigenous, and people of color, the trauma is ongoing. And that's what is not being addressed. And I think that's why we're seeing the social unrest that we're seeing. I don't think, you know, when you look at, um, you know, white people in our society, they don't really have exposure to uh, what native populations are experiencing. They may never have met someone from a native, one of the 500 native tribes in the US. Right. They may never have had a friend who's black or even Hispanic. So, you know, they don't really know what's going on in their day-to-day -day life, what it's like to, you know, be jogging and be killed while you were jogging, you know, or to be right. killed in your bed. They, they don't have that experience of, of, you know, a parent who's lost a child because of the color of their skin. But when you're looking at treatment, I think knowing the past as deeply as you can know it can only enhance your ability to help a person 
um, you know, really heal at the deepest level possible. And when there is ongoing trauma, as it is in these other populations, um, and, and in white populations who come from, you know, very poor backgrounds, for example, um, you know, who, who have ongoing trauma from that, it's just important to recognize that it doesn't, it's not just one event that happened when you were 12 years old, or it's not just a series of events that was time limited. For many people, trauma is ongoing in their lives. So. Okay, well, Dr. Uh, Dr. Ross. Have I exhausted you? <laughs> not at all. Like I'm just so intrigued in, in this conversation with you. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. And I know families are going to want to follow up. So let's, you know, where can they find your TED Talks? Where can they find your written materials? How, how can a family get in touch and follow up with you? I think the easiest is just to go to my uh, website, carolynrossmd.com. And just make sure you spell Carolyn the American way, not the British way. It's C-A-R-O-L-Y-N rossmd.com. And on there is my TED talk, there are my podcast, there's, you know, links to my blog on psychology today. And you can also contact me through the website. All right, folks, you you heard the doctors, it's time to follow doctor's orders, get to carolynrossmd.com, C-O-R-C-A-R-O-L-Y-N, rossmd.com. Dr. Ross, again, thank you. I'm going to have you back as a guest. I want to get you connected over with uh, Kristen Walker, whose show you've been on, on Mental Health News Radio Network, um, and, and get your podcast over there, because we are the biggest mental health news radio network in the world, and it's it, we'd love to have you over on our, on our network. Well, it's so, a pleasure. It's always fun to talk to you, because you know what you're talking about, and you have a passion like I do, so... Well, 200 episodes later of listening to, to you guys, the experts taught has done nothing but benefit me, my life, the facility I run this podcast, just being able to help people. It's, it's fantastic. And it's, it's really, it's people like you who keep your finger on the pulse of the research to turn around and tell the parents, this is what you need to do. Like, like right here, the, the, just what you were talking about with omega-3 fatty acids and how that reduces suicide attempts in the military. And if it can do it there, it can do it with your children. And people hear, oh, fish oil is important. No one knows how important it is. On it raises the IQ of your baby. <laughs> it's just incredible. And then, of course, the bonding and everything that the CDC has done that you talked about, about building uh, the network around the child of, of mature, educated adults. So this is fantastic. So Dr. Ross, I'm definitely going to have you back. We're going to talk again. Thanks so much for being on Beyond Risk and Back. Thank you. Thank you. I loved it. Hang, hang tight a second while I say goodbye. Well, this is just another one of those episodes where I'm, I'm like, there's so much more I need to go do. I want to go Google everything Dr. Ross said and, and find the studies that she's either written or read. Um, but one of the things she talked about at the end on my very last question I wanted to bring up, and that was the difference between knowledge and understanding. When we're working with people in a trauma response situation, we can all have knowledge of what other people are going through. As a white man, I can have knowledge of what black America has gone through, but I won't understand. And the importance of understanding 
what our First Nations went through, what black Americans are going through, what Jewish people went through in the Holocaust, what it's the understanding that we're looking for, not just the knowledge. The knowledge is a great start. The knowledge that there's trauma in this child's life is one thing, but it's the understanding that we're pursuing because when we truly understand, we can truly help. And that's the goal. And having worked with kids who have been trafficked, I now have knowledge of what that does to a child. I will never understand. And that's why we have to keep doing the work with the experts like Dr. Ross. Again, go to carolynrossmd.com, follow up with her, watch her TED Talks. Uh, and thank you. Thank you for being a listener on Beyond Risk and Back. Please listen, like, subscribe, and share to Beyond Risk and Back. And leave a review on iTunes, please, please, pretty please, so that we can help parents find the help to help their teens that are struggling. I want to thank uh, Mental Health News Radio. I want to thank... Uh, uh, your cause consulting who's going to make sure this podcast gets in front of everybody in the world and I want to thank Deepin Productions to write this incredible song here take a listen yeah that's Deepin Productions they also produce all the podcasts and make sure everybody sounds good so check out Deepin Productions check out your cause consulting and I want to thank C4 Events for keeping me on as their podcaster so that I can get experts like Dr. Ross and uh, thank you to the WCSAD speakers and sponsors. Parents, please take care of yourselves first, your adult relationships second, and your children third, because that's how we do our best work with our children. We'll see you next week. <laughs>